Um, I'm gonna get my biscuits. Is it wise to open two packets of biscuits? Why not? Because they might go soft. Not the way I've been plowing through them, man. Oh, okay, that's fine. Oh, there are. There's like none of them in here. Oh, piss off! You've been shafted. <laughs> <laughs> that loathsome Mr. Kipling. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Spirit of the Blitz, sitting across from me is Daniel. Manifest Destiny over there is Abby. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Right. The Antichrist. And I really do believe he is the Antichrist. Napoleon Bonaparte, with his millions of zealous followers, is terrorizing all of Europe. The Royal Navy has attained undisputed mastery of the seas and will wreak its tyranny over the globe for another century. Following the lead of the United States, all of the Americas are in open revolt against their European overlords, including the great slave revolt in Haiti, led by Toussaint Louverture and his successors. In Britain, a technological and economic revolution promises incredible wealth and power for merchants and industrialists and immiseration for the workers. Never mind that sh- the eccentric daughters of the home counties need rich husbands, and there are only so many around who are in want of a wife. We're doing 1813 Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. That was unhinged. Thank you okay. for that. That's, yeah, it's all right. Yeah. Antichrist. <laughs> little War and Peace reference, that was. So, it goes without saying, we're about to spoil this book for you. The trigger warnings. Uh... Bitchiness? I don't really know. I guess economic anxiety? Uh, lion attacks? Yeah, that's a good bit, that, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I, I, I gotta that, be honest, uh, I haven't really read this book. I just assumed it's a Lion King situation. Yeah, because um, a prejudice is the collective <laughs> noun for some lions. Yeah. <laughs> we did release this during Pride Month, uh, so presumably this is a very queer book. I'm gonna be super mad if there's not a single queer reading in the entire thing. I really, really hope this is the gayest book we've read since our last episode. Yeah, they can't just keep getting gayer and gayer. In your book, they're getting every week. It's, there's going to be a moment where just we reach peak gayness. Great. There is no oh. such thing as peak gayness. <laughs> All right. Would you like to do some background? Yes, please. Jane Austen, a little-known novelist, a little <laughs> lady from uh, <laughs> from Hampshire. Um, Absolute twat. <laughs> she was writing at the turn of the 19th century, so kind of 1790s, 1800s. Most of her books were published a bit later, weren't they? Sometimes posthumously. She kind of lived sort of in the world that her novels described, you know, the landed gentry and aristocracy. She, her family were a bit like the Bennett family in Pride and Prejudice. They were kind of slightly on the poorer end of this very rich class. Isn't that sad? The, the note you have here is boo-hoo. Should we talk about the actual kind of genre, genre of her works? So she's a major canonical figure, isn't she? But I think people forget that 
her works are actually very formative in the development of the novel. They, they play with issues of satire, that's why her books are really funny. They satirize in particular sentimental novels, like Richardson's Pamela, which we covered earlier. Episode 6. <laughs> yeah, episode 6, uh, last season. She does a lot with satirical cultural commentary, so we, at the beginning of the season, did Gulliver's Travels. She's episode sort of... 14. <laughs> Yeah. If you want, if you want to see uh, the unholy marriage of Samuel Richardson and Jonathan Swift, no, thank you. you. Well, you're looking at it. I'm afraid. Carry on. Yeah, she she did a little bit with Gothic literature. She also did a little bit of Romantic literature style landscape writing. It's all a big soup of that, <laughs> isn't it? And she, by kind of absorbing all of this stuff at once, she kind of creates the sort of. Uh, style that we associate with 19th century realist novels going forward. Yeah, and one of the things that bothers me a little bit is that her books are often thought of as just rom-coms, right? They're very funny, and they're often about marriage, but a rom-com is something very, very different. And these really are an entity unto themselves. I don't know whether I fully agree. I think there probably is a germ of rom-comminess here. Just because they get a happy ending. Well, but also, like, because it's a comedy of manners, right? Because it's about... It's, sorry, I shouldn't define it one genre by another, but because it's about all these different temperaments meeting up and trying to work out each other's differences and ultimately, you know, after the will-they-won't-they they stuff, they ultimately get together. That is like a rom-com, even if, yeah, the rom-com emerges, like, at, like capital R, capital C, if you want to say it in those terms, emerges in the 20th century with, like, cinema. I think... She, they're related, aren't they? I think that this is the cousin to the rom-com in the most technical sense that it ends on a marriage. Okay, it's a comedy. Mm. But I think people view these as contemporary rom-coms, and it's not. Austen herself seemed to regret that of all of her novels, this one fit most closely into conventions of the romance narrative. So she described Pride and Prejudice as, quote, rather too light and bright and sparkling. Which is funny because, I mean, I find this book to be terribly sad in parts. Yeah. Um, there's okay. an anxiety that sort of goes through it. And I think people really sort of view this as either some sort of light little frippet, not worthy of attention, or this big epic romance, and I really don't think it's either of those things. I wouldn't say it was either, 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 either. So, back when Daniel sort of said boo-hoo about, you know, her being on the lower end of the very upper socioeconomic spectrum, Austen, you know, has a really great sense of the anxieties plaguing women, uh, the sort of economic straits that they're in. She's really only concerned with fairly wealthy white women isn't she? I mean, you get you get little hints here and there that, you know, oh, so-and-so might have a plantation somewhere or mm. get money from the colonies. But Mansfield it's Park is the big one for that, isn't it? Yeah. Very subtle and in Open the background, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about the fact that Austin is on the £10 note? Yeah. There's some controversy about that, wasn't there? Because of, because uh, just ma mental people, I think. What does it say on the, the money? I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. That's the little blurb that they gave her on the £10 note. It's a bad one to pick, isn't it? That is so stupid. It sounds like Austen herself is saying, Everybody loves reading. Yes, she technically wrote that. She wrote that, in fact, in this book. I have highlighted the character who says it. She puts that in the mouth of an idiot. Because it's an idiotic saying, and she's making fun of this woman who hates reading and is trying to flirt with a dude who likes it. Yeah, reading is boring. So... And finally, can we just acknowledge Pride and Prejudice is not a Victorian novel. What? That annoys me so much. The Victorian era started in 1837. That's when Queen Victoria came on the throne. This was written in 1813. I think it was even written before, right? It was probably written before. It was originally called First Impressions. 
But yes. then that made a bad first impression, so she changed it to Daniel. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> Sorry, you're getting heckled isn't already. Isn't it a rip-off of Fanny Burney's Evelina? Isn't the plot almost identical? I've never read Evelina, so I don't know. I have, and it was boring, and this is funny, so... Kudos to you, Jane Austen. But yeah, guys, this is a 19th century novel, not a Victorian one. I know that sounds like I'm splitting hairs or being pedantic here. It is actually a really important distinction. Listener, be aware, I am starting the summary for this time. Who knows why? It's been gamed, so Abby gets all the best bits. <laughs> uh, so, the famous opening line. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in one of a what quiz i have the notes here in dipshit so you might come up with a witticism that's fine it's a wife <laughs> uh, <laughs> people tend to forget the second line however little known the feelings of or view of such a man may be on this his first entering a neighborhood this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he's considered as the rightful property of some or other of their daughters Ha ha ha. That's funny, isn't it? Turns out it's not universally acknowledged truth. Just all the mothers of the world are very keen to believe it as such. I know that a lot of people on Goodreads really hated this sort of element of the book. I saw a lot of people calling them gold diggers or bimbos who are only interested in rich men or whatever. This is important context to set up here, right? That the daughters have no other property of their own, very little chance to earn it. And I think the best way to think of this in modern terms is, you know, a single wealthy man is the same as a well-paid permanent good job that, you know, thousands of people are applying for, right? So it's that level of competition. So there's a lot of Austenian irony. Everyone knows rich men want wives, even if the rich men themselves don't. Enter the Bennett family. So we have the cast of characters here that I'm going to go through. <laughs> the Bennets live on an estate called Longbourn in Hertfordshire. Mr. Bennett, the dad of the family, he's old, he's sarcastic, he's a member of the lower gentry. Lots of disdain for his wife. Uh, he likes to be left alone with his books. And importantly, his property is entailed. So it's basically the Downton Abbey plot, right? It means that when he dies, his wife and his five daughters will be out on the street when the house passes to a distant male relative. Then there's Mrs. Bennett, his wife. She's nervous. She's obsessed with marrying off her five daughters before her husband dies. She's a little bit trashy and embarrassing. She has delusions that she's more quality than she is. And that's because she comes from trade, don't you know? Her husband might be from the lower gentry, but her dad was a lawyer. Disgusting. Yeah. Okay, so now we get to their daughters. Jane Bennett, the eldest. She's a really oh, like easygoing yeah. sweetheart. Yeah, she's the prettiest of all of them. She's not quite a bimbo, but she's also not the sort of woman you'd want to see working with subatomic particles. The golden retriever of a woman. Yeah, uh... <laughs> it's funny. Are you, are you offended? I'm just thinking... There's not that many people that work with subatomic particles. I mean... I like Jane. I just, you know, she's the sort of woman who wonders where rainbows go at night. Uh, Lizzie Bennett, who is the heroine of the story, so it's going to center around her. She's the second eldest daughter. She's really sharp, ironic, a lot like her dad. Uh, she has very high standards for herself and others. A real leader of women. Then we get to Mary Bennett, the middle sister, who's... Oh. Yeah. I love Mary Bennett. She's a piano-playing, caterwauling dork, super middle child, doesn't give a shit, just doing her own thing. Rock out, Mary. 
we get to Kitty Bennett. Who's oh, she's my favorite. The fourth, <laughs> the fourth daughter. Silly, vapid, not a ton of personality. We don't really see very much of her. Very easily led by her youngest sister, Lydia. And that brings us to the youngest, Lydia Bennett, who's just a pretty typical 15-year-old. She's boy crazy, just a walking hard-on for any man in a military uniform. Girl, I get it, I know. So that is our cast of characters. It's kind of a madhouse. They're all brawling around and trading barbs and their ribbons everywhere and ribbing and ribbons i like that yeah. look at you we also get a little funny description of mr bennett mr bennett was so odd a mixture of quick parts sarcastic humor reserve and caprice that the experience of three and twenty years had been insufficient to make his wife understand his character her mind was less difficult to develop she was a woman of mean understanding little information and uncertain temper when she was discontented she fancied herself nervous the business of her life was to get her daughters married its solace was visiting and news. So I feel like I met a thousand couples like this with a kind of acerbic dad and a sort of scatterbrained mother. You meet a lot of women with weak nerves. You meet a lot of women who've skipped nerve day at the gym. Yeah. We learn that a rich young man, Mr. Charles Bingley, has moved into the nearby manor house, Netherfield. Sure, he's rich, but how is his can? I refuse to get excited uh. over a guy who doesn't have a nice keister. Is uh. he good looking? Don't get me excited for this guy, Daniel. I've heard good things. So Mrs. Bennett is therefore planning on orchestrating that he marry one of her daughters, whether he likes it or not. This is, this is very important, listeners. The women cannot pay a call on Mr. Bingley and his sisters until Mr. Bennett does it first. It's not done for young ladies to just go and knock on people's doors. It's just not cricket, Daniel. No. Yeah, I know you're joking, but it's not. Um, <laughs> you're, you're a guest in our country. Uh, <laughs> don't make fun of our customs. Mrs. Bennett is very eager that he do so immediately before the, all the other mamas in the neighborhood get their hooks into him. Mr. Bennett kind of pretends that he hasn't gone and like would refuse to. Turns out he has. So, yeah. you, crisis averted. Ha ha ha, the Bennett dynamic is established. I've just never seen a woman wolf whistle money before. The Bennett sisters end up going to a local ball where we get our first sight of this Mr. Bingley, who is, quote, good looking and gentlemanlike. Um, I need to stop you here, though, Daniel, because you wrote this bit, and I don't think you're giving him his appropriate due. Bingley is king of the himbos. Could we get a little royal fanfare mixed with the himbo sting, please? A regal himbo, yeah. So Bingley's sisters have come, too, and they have, quote, an air of decided fashion. Caroline Bingley, the bitchier of his sisters, strolls in wearing a dress that's just dyed with the blood of other lesser dresses and just exuding a real fuck the pores energy. Mm -hmm. But it's Bingley's good friend, Mr. Darcy, who's come with him to his new house, who soon drew the attention of the room by his fine, tall person, handsome features, and noble mien. And... Importantly, his supposed 10000 a year. So in today's money, that would be like 700 k a year. This is like a witch hunt or something. This is like persecution. You know about measuring worth and you're not using it. Fortunately, I am. And I know how much the 10 k a year is in proper terms, in real terms. I'm just leaving space for you. I want you to have a voice in this podcast. So yes, in terms of just standard inflation, 10 k a year is indeed 700 k a year. In terms of labor earnings, i.e. 10,000K relative to the wage of the average worker at that time, today that would be worth 8,300,000 pounds. In terms of the relative income value, so in relation to GDP per capita, <sighs> don't sigh, this is interesting. <laughs> um, 
His income would be £9,700,000 a year. Finally, in terms of the economic clout of his income, his wealth is £47,630,000. The guy is really rich. I think it's worth stating that Darcy is like unbelievably rich. Men and women alike ogle and admire Darcy until he opens his mouth. For he was discovered to be proud, to be above his company, and above being pleased. So this dude's a supercilious rich prick. Bingley is nice, though. He's, he's this little puppyish, delightful himbo of a man. Why are these two friends? You know, what, what sort of wacky hijinks got them into... It's the banter. It's because they've got the banter. There's no banter there. Bingley isn't contributing. He's just going, oh, gee, Darcy, you're so right. <laughs> doop -a -doop -a -doop. Yeah, Darcy really likes that. And the important thing here, right, is that Bingley dances with Jane Bennett, the eldest sister, four times, which is a huge deal because they're at this big party with a ton of other girls who don't have dance partners. Bingley's got a crush on her. This is adorable. F that was easy. Yeah. Elizabeth overhears Bingley try to cajole Darcy into dancing, and Darcy responds, quote, I'd rather not stoop so low as to dance with this rabble. Nice. And he says, you, meaning Bingley, are dancing with the only handsome girl in the room, Jane Bennett. You know, the rest, eh, what a bunch of uggos, Lizzie included. And Elizabeth, unsurprisingly, is completely unimpressed. It's probably worth mentioning here that these sort of local gentry balls are, this is not the Bridgerton style, like, you know, very gentle waltz or whatever. These are a bit more rough and tumble, a bit country dance, yeah. a bit rowdy. It's not like a whole orchestra and stuff and big crystal no. chandeliers. It's like in a big barn. This is, somebody's playing the spoons. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's sweaty. There's dust on the floor. Yeah. But it's still only for aristocrats, isn't it? I think that's, yeah. that's the appeal of measuring worth is that it teaches us that what today would be a pretty highfalutin affair in the 1810s would have spoons. <laughs> Charlotte Lucas. She's Elizabeth's plain best friend. We've all got one. This is Elizabeth's. Daniel's mine. <laughs> and you're mine. She comes over and she and the Bennets they have a little bit of a, a post-mortem regarding last night's ball. This is every high school dance. Bingley has clearly got the hots for Jane. Yeah, good work on that dancing, Jane. Yep. She Shake it like a nasty bitch. <laughs> The important thing Elizabeth says is that Darcy is an arse, arsey Darcy. He's too proud. The Bennets and the Bingleys, they're all starting to kind of become friends over the next few days. And Elizabeth notices that Mr. Bingley and Jane appear to be getting closer and closer. Charlotte Lucas shares her rules for bagging a husband with Elizabeth. And these are, it's worth taking note of these, isn't it? I think just bear this in mind, listeners. Number one, in nine cases out of 10, a woman had better show more affection than she feels. Oh, <laughs> you're so funny. You know, it's like that, isn't it? <laughs> Number two. Daniel, you are so funny. <laughs> Number two. She should make the most of every hour in which she commands his attention. So don't shrink the violet. Be a big violet. Number three. Happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. Get the ring on your finger, yeah, exactly. then sort your husband out. Yeah. Elizabeth, she's quite disturbed by her friend's rules. But, you know, yeah, we'll see how they, you know, manifest themselves later on. This is very Real Housewives of Longbourn or Hart yeah, exactly, Real Housewives yeah. of Hertfordshire, wherever we are. What's important to note here is that, um, especially but we can see this between Lizzie and her mother and Lizzie and her friend Charlotte Lucas, there's actually a massive paradigm shift happening in the aristocracy between getting married for economic reasons and duty versus getting married for love. And over the course of the 
19th century, that's going to become more and more popular, this idea of getting married for love. That wasn't super a thing before then. So, like, the, the paradigm shift is happening now. So the social calendar continues, and Elizabeth starts to grow on Mr. Darcy. Mr. Darcy had at first scarcely allowed her to be pretty. He had looked at her without admiration at the ball, and when they next met, he looked at her only to criticise. But not sooner had he made it clear to himself and his friends that she hardly had a good feature on her face, then he began to find it was rendered uncommonly intelligent by the beautiful expression of her dark eyes. To this discovery succeeded some others equally mortifying. Oh god, this kills me oh, a little it's, bit. It's very touching, isn't it? The guy is smitten, he doesn't even like it. So, Darcy's hate for Elizabeth, slightly wavering. Elizabeth's is true. <laughs> Elizabeth hates Darcy. She refuses to dance with him at any parties. Put a little note here on Mary, Mary Bennett's obsession with accomplishments. We, the book talks a lot about young ladies' accomplishments, by which they mean all the sort of little performative stuff that you would get to land a husband. Drawing, so, speaking French, playing the piano. Yes, fancy embroidery, things like that, dancing. Mary is keen to attain all of these skills, but she wants to do it for her own sake, not to get a husband. And she isn't even good at them. She, yeah. You know, she, she's just there banging away at the piano, having the time of her life. But I think there's something a bit sad about her, though, because she knows that accomplishments are important, but she doesn't recognize the accomplishments are, are in themselves limited, and that's because they are just an end to getting a husband. No, yeah. Daniel, I'm sorry. Finally, a hero has emerged in this story. <laughs> but the true, like, she's, she's like a sort of, like, if Jane Austen had never realized that you could write novels. If, if instead she was just like, I'm just going to get really good at playing uh, minuets on the piano. I, I'm sorry, Daniel, but I love her. I don't find anything sad or tragic. I like Mary, but I think no. she's a tragic No, story. Daniel, when I fall, I fall hard. I love her. She's great. Yeah. Maybe that's all that, that's all that she needs. She just really wants to get good at embroidery. And she isn't, and she's like, but, I, but I'm just having fun. The important thing is I'm having fun. Yeah, well, you better be, because... <laughs> So, meanwhile, a militia regiment has encamped nearby, and the, the sort of two youngest, silliest Bennett sisters, Kitty and Lydia, they both like a man in uniform, much to the irritation of their dad. Mr. Bingley invites Jane, his little crush, to his house, Netherfield, for the evening. And Mrs. Bennett, who's a little, she's got some peasant cunning here, uh, she suggests that Jane, instead of going in a carriage, go by horseback nice because it's gonna rain later on and the girls are like yeah that's why i should take the carriage and she's like no 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 babies my sweet dumb babies <laughs> if it's raining and you're on horseback you're gonna have to stay the night at his place and you know staying overnight that's when proposals happen unfortunately on the way there jane gets caught in a torrential downpour throw jane in a bag of rice she'll be fine yeah lo and behold Jane is ill. She has to stay there indefinitely until she gets better. The UK healthcare system is amazing. You get a slight head cold and you get put up in a mansion for weeks. Yeah, well, we fought for it, so, you know. <laughs> the next day, Elizabeth walks to Nether Netherfield to visit her sick sister. She jumps over stiles and springs over puddles, and she kind of arrives. She's all muddy and hearty and, you know plump of fetlock and rosy of cheek or whatever. They, they talk about how her, her hem is six inches deep in mud. She's a right little grublet, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, exactly, yeah. It does not go down with uh, bitch and bitchability. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Louisa and Caroline. She has nothing to recommend her but being an excellent walker. <laughs> that, that is funny, isn't it? Uh, when she arrived, she looked almost wild. So Elizabeth's here to look after Jane. So that evening, 
You know, everyone sits around and they all talk about the ideal woman, uh, what kind of accomplishments she should have and how many. And Caroline Bingley says, the ideal woman, quote, must have a thorough knowledge of music, singing, drawing, dancing, and the modern languages. And besides all this, she must possess a certain something in her air and manner of walking, the tone of her voice, her address and expressions. Like, okay, Caroline, keep writing your perfect <laughs> D&D character. Don't forget your <laughs> fucking plus five for your broadsword. Things turn bitchy pretty quickly between Caroline Bingley and Elizabeth. It reads today as all terribly mannered, but you guys should read this scene with a real sort of mortal combat energy, just very like mm. Bon Mo kick, veil aside punch, finish her. Just a sort of Regency street fighter. And this is because Caroline Bingley has her eyes set on Mr. Darcy, who's, you know, there also visiting the family. And she kind of senses that Lizzie is competition, so she just trashes Lizzie as much as she can. She also continuously interrupts Darcy while he's writing a letter in an attempt to flirt with him. And Caroline also keeps interrupting Darcy when he's trying to read a book, and she doesn't even realize that she's just f***ing annoying. This is the bit where she says, like, she's over there reading a book, too, or trying to, and she says, There is no enjoyment like reading. So there's our little line on the ten-pound note. As you can see, not really appropriate. <laughs> now, Caroline, making all of her digs right to Lizzie's face, makes Darcy actually jump up to defend Lizzie, but Darcy is so far up his own ass and so bad at being sensitive <laughs> to other people that despite his best efforts, he kind of sounds like he's dragging Lizzie too. It's a mess. It's misunderstanding on top of misunderstanding. Cluster fuck. Cluster whoops, Daniel. I'd ask you to keep <laughs> your mouth clean. Okay. Lizzie's there. Jane's there. They stay there for like a week. Later on, the other Bennett women folk come to visit Jane and Elizabeth, and they embarrass them both because the sisters and their mother are just kind of a lot. So Jane eventually recovers. She and Elizabeth go home, leaving Darcy feeling kind of all funny about it. <laughs> Mr. Bennett announces that a gentleman and a stranger is coming to visit. It's his distant cousin, one Mr. Collins, a vicar, who is also the heir apparent to Longbourn. So when Mr. Bennett dies, this dweebus is gonna... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gonna be inheriting. Yeah. Collins has invited himself over... Basically to wife shop amongst the daughters, right? Well, he says it's to make amends between the two branches of the family. If you want to attribute any ulterior motive, that's your problem. Mr. Bennett confirms that they're in for some fun. Lo and behold, Mr. Collins is indeed a pompous boob. He ogles the house uh, that he stands to inherit as much as he ogles the Bennett girls. And uh, Mr. Collins is also very proud of his patroness, Lady Catherine de Boer, the local landowner. Uh, he can't stop talking about her. Although she's kind of sounds a bit like a, a bit of a tyrant. Maybe he's in, he clearly seems into that. It's a man who, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, well, needs a steady yeah, hand. Yeah, yeah. Collins is as absurd as Mr. Bennett had hoped, and he listened to him with the keenest enjoyment, <laughs> maintaining at the same time the most resolute composure of countenance, and except in an occasional glance to Elizabeth, requiring no partner for his <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> Collins reveals he has the hops for Jane and wants to propose to her. Mrs. Bennett is like, well, weren't the wives, she's pretty much as good as engaged to someone else. So, you know, next in line, Lizzie. So he's like, well, they're all interchangeable, these ladies. I'm sold. Who doesn't have the hearts for Jane, though? 
do I have the <laughs> I have the hots for Jane. So we're hosting this horrible relative, Mr. Collins, um, and he and the family go into town one day, and there they are introduced to one Mr. Wickham, a handsome young army officer who appeals especially to just horn dogs, Kitty and Lydia. <laughs> Lizzie, she's not immune herself, you know, she, she's like, hmm, Stone Cold Fox, this one. I had really wanted to do a whole joke here where we called him Mr. Wiggum and have you do a sort of Chief Wiggum voice from The Simpsons, but that's completely incompatible. Just like the sexy Spanish guitar music follows Wickham wherever he goes. So, they're all out in town, they meet this hot guy, strike up a conversation, it's all great. Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy happen to walk by, too, and they stop by and say hello. But there appears to be some serious beef between <laughs> Mr. Darcy and this new hot Mr. Wickham character. They don't like each other very much. Mr. Wickham, he quickly becomes a part of the Bennett social circle, you know, overshadowing Mr. Collins. At one party, Mr. Wickham reveals to Elizabeth that actually he's got a bit of a history with that Darcy fellow. Darcy's father was Mr. Wickham's godfather, and he says that Mr. Darcy had always been jealous of Wickham's relationship with the elder Mr. Darcy, and so when, you know, Darcy's dad died, Darcy cut him out of the will. He lays it on real thick, too, Wickham. He's like, Darcy's done me wrong like a man in a Patsy Cline song, and this confirms all of Elizabeth's suspicions and then some. And it turns out, because it's a real small world that everyone, you know, runs in, that the great lady... Catherine de Burr, who is, you know, this horrible Mr. Collins's lady patroness, she's Mr. Darcy's aunt. What? Yeah. Then there's an upcoming ball at Netherfield. But this this is not the sort of country bumpkin square dance like before. This is the real deal. This is the Bridgerton shit, right? So Mrs. Bennett is like, do not f*** around. Get your baps out, lasses. <laughs> Get those guys. The kind of cold meats that they had at the local ball, it was like tongue like that mutton this the cold meats here you couldn't even imagine these cold meats i cannot believe you just did a chef's kiss on this podcast i am so ashamed of you whenever cold meats get mentioned in jane austen there's something about it she, she really ogles the cold meats i thought but why are you getting all excited about you're a vegetarian i'm not a vegetarian and it's funny to talk about the cold meats i have a question hmm I know you just said you're not a vegetarian, but you basically are. When you get mad at somebody, is that still considered a beef? We non-vegetarian vegetarians are a very mild-mannered bunch, so I never have beefs. Beefs. There's a lot of cold meat. Have you noticed that? Emma has a really good cold meat. <laughs> I, I genuinely want to go down to the shop and buy you, like, a little sampling platter because I think you're having some sort of protein deficiency. I'm genuinely worried about you. That's why you might. The ball. Everyone's here. You know? Wickham. He's not there. <laughs> Go to a shit start. That's devastating, the one hot guy. Yeah, well, Elizabeth misses him. But she's like, well, whatever. And she breaks the habit of uh, six months and dances with Darcy. And they have a bit more banter. They just can't work each other out, can they? <laughs> they, you know, they they start to even second guess their own prejudices regarding one another. Jane and Bingley, they continue to get on well. Yeah. The rest of the Bennets, they're up to their usual tricks. Mrs. Bennet is very audibly bragging about the inevitability of Jane bagging Bingley. Mary, she's all kind of singing and playing the piano embarrassingly. Oh, yeah. she's pouring money, but rich in song. Exactly, yeah. 
Uh, Mr. Bennett is generally difficult. He's a classic difficult dad, isn't he? Elizabeth is very embarrassed by her family. Do, am I remembering this just from the Kira Knightley film adaptation, or does Mrs. Bennett get a little drunk? I think it's maybe in veiled terms in the... She's like, I match make better after a couple. <laughs> so the next day, you know, everyone's probably hungover. Lizzie's a bit embarrassed after the whole... I can't like... believe I ate all that cold meat, so I'm never having cold meat again. <laughs> what? What are you on about? Are you having a stroke? Yeah. So the next day, everyone's kind of having a rough morning, and Mr. Collins asks for a private audience with Elizabeth. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. Elizabeth immediately is like, no, 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 I, I think I know where this is headed. Um, and she, she tries to head Collins off at the pass, making very obvious hints that she's not interested in him or whatever he's going to be talking to her about in private. Collins then proceeds to make a really horrible marriage proposal. Uh, the gist of it is basically, hey, I want to get married because men in my profession should get married. And Lady Catherine de Burr told me to. And I want to marry you because this will kind of be a consolation prize to your family who was going to lose this house. So this is like one way to house one of their daughters after your dad dies. And, you know, you seem like you'd make a good wife or whatever. You're fine. You'll do. So Elizabeth stifles a laugh and is like, mm, thanks, no thanks. Collins is just super not reading the room, and he's like, oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just this is a funny bit. Go ahead. He's like, he's like, oh, you're so modest. I, I know that this is a thing that chicks do, right, to, to make them. Read the line. I, I'm going to. Okay, for, oh, Jesus, all right. He says, quote, it is usual with young ladies to reject the addresses of the man whom they secretly mean to accept when he first applies for their favor. And Elizabeth is like, I'm not uh, toying with you. I'm not, like, playing hard to get here, right? But Colin's like, no, 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 women play games, of course. <laughs> <laughs> So she's like, Dad? And she has to get her father to say no for her because, quote, his behavior at least could not be mistaken for the affectation and coquetry of an elegant female. That's such a great bit, isn't it? About yeah. the, uh, well, Dad won't seem like a flirt. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that classic, like, you can't just say, no, I'm not interested. You have to say, no, I have a boyfriend mm. sort of thing. Except here, it's your dad. You always need the proxy male to show ownership and give the no yeah. to the other man. The only problem is she knows her mom is about to be pissed at her because she's like, Elizabeth, this is not a joke. When your dad dies, you're, you're, you're not really getting it. We are going to be out on the street. Why would you turn down any marriage proposal? Like you could stay in your home and be fairly well off. So she's like, Mr. Bennett, you know, tell our daughter what a mistake she's made. And Mr. Bennett, as ever, just likes to f with his wife. They love it. They love the band. I was the... gonna say that. I think this is all an extended bit. I think their whole marriage yeah, is well, this one of those insufferable couples that just does like the fake argument. Yeah. I don't actually have a lot of hope for them, but that's fine. So he says, Elizabeth, quote, your mother will never see you again if you do not marry Mr. Collins. And I will never see you again if you do. Oh, whoa. So there are just like bad vibes in this house. Mrs. Bennett is angry with everyone. Mr. Collins is really embarrassed. He's in a, quote, state of angry pride. But he refuses to leave until the appointed day. He's like, no, I didn't book an open return. And then... Okay, are you ready for the most horrible bit? Caroline Bingley, from, you know, next door, writes to say, 
actually, we're leaving Netherfield immediately, and she implies that her brother, Mr. Bingley, is going to marry Mr. Darcy's sister. What? what? He is jilted Jane. Poor old Jane is like, I'm sorry, what? But, but we were just dancing last night. Who's in the right and who's in the wrong here, then, Mr. Bennett or Mrs. Bennett? Is Mrs. Bennett overly controlling or is Mr. Bennett overly careless? Mr. Bennett is overly careless. I kind of feel like they're both in the wrong. Or possibly both in the right. I think Mrs. Bennett is perfectly entitled yeah. to have her feelings yeah, about yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's also not just Lizzie's financial security, but also Mrs. Bennett's and all the sisters. That's that's the important thing. That's why they need to land a rich husband, mm. because one wealthy husband will take care of the whole family. Yeah. There's something kind of uh, disturbing about Mr. Bennett, isn't there? His total complacency about... He has, yeah, no sense of care whatsoever what happens to his girls after he dies. Hmm. I mean, he's obviously, we're meant to like him because he's funny and aloof and I hate people, just leave me alone with my book sort of thing. So he's like relatable. And he gets on with the daughters. Shall we all just take a little moment to remember Charlotte Lucas's rules for bagging a bow? And Charlotte's a little bit older, so she, and you know, a little bit plainer and a lot, you know, sensible. A little bit older, a lot bit plainer. <laughs> Alright, right, blokes? Um, number one, show more affection than you feel. Number two, make use of every opportunity to command your ideal man's attention. Number three, do not worry about happiness until after the fact. It's Collins's penultimate day at Longbourn and they all go to the Lucas's house. Charlotte Lucas keeps Collins entertained all evening, being even friendlier to the idiot than Elizabeth thought possible. And they all think like, oh, she's just taking one for the team, yeah, entertaining this yeah. buffoon. <laughs> yeah. The next day, Charlotte sees Collins out walking and contrives to accidentally run into him. Oh, the old accidental on purpose. Yeah, classic. Soon enough, her pure and disinterested desire to get married, it pays dividends. Collins proposes to her and she accepts. Elizabeth, she's a bit freaked out by the whole thing, isn't she? And Charlotte's like, I'm not romantic, you know. I never was. I ask only a comfortable home. And yet Lizzie reads her the riot act for marrying this absolute twit. And Charlotte reads Lizzie the riot act right back. A different one. She's like, just because you didn't want him doesn't mean that everyone would think he's some sort of supercharged dumpster fire of a man. I will make it work. Mind your own business. And she's basically like the the speech they gave in the movie that I don't think uh, appears in the book, but it's like heavily implied in the book is I'm 27. I'm a spinster. I have no prospects and I'm a burden to my parents. Like, I don't think, Lizzie, you are appreciating the economic considerations right now, right? Um, and even sweet Jane is like, Lizzie, tone it down. You know Charlotte is part of this huge family who already can't support them all. Collins Gate. We've had that. We've had the whole Bingley rejection of Jane. Out of nowhere. Yeah. The Bennets overall are at a low ebb. And Elizabeth tells her dad, at this point, that she's interested in Wickham. Mr. Bennet is like, well, he'll jilt you credibly. <laughs> oh, he'd ghost the sh** out of you, baby girl. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Next, the gardeners. New Cap characters. Capital G. They are, are Mrs. Bennet's brother and sister-in-law. They visit Longbourn. They know Darcy and Wickham vaguely, and Mrs. Gardner tells Elizabeth that Wickham is an unsuitable match. He's not got enough money. <laughs> and she soon after hears on the grapevine that he's been seen romancing some rich girl, Miss King. The guy's got mercenary intentions. He's just playing the field a little bit. He's looking at his options. Don't hate the player, hate the game, Daniel. Well, well 
The gardeners invite Jane to stay with them in London so she can kind of get over the whole bingley hoo-ha. And Mr. Bennett has that weird bit where he's like, it's good for her, you know, girls, you don't have much going on upstairs, so it's good for you to, like, be disappointed in love sometimes. It gives you something to think about. He has this really, like, yeah. patronizing shitty. So Charlotte Lucas, now Collins, because she has not wasted any time, she has married Mr. Collins, and they have gone off to his vicarage, she invites Elizabeth to come visit her. And she actually seems pretty happy with her new life. She, quote, wisely does not hear anything stupid that her new husband says. So they all get invited to Lady Catherine de Burr's manor. <laughs> and Collins sort of warns Lizzie that she is, quote, the sort of woman whom one cannot regard with too much deference. So Is that a warning or is that an acclamation? Uh, yes, is the answer. <laughs> but the short version is, Lizzie, you better mind your P's and Q's. I love that she's the widow of a baronet the lowest and newest form of aristocracy. So for all that she's going off about being hot shit, you're not actually, you are like the lowest rung of the aristocracy. That's pretty good. Who are you to say that? Commoners muck? It's in your hands. Hard and clearly work the soil. <laughs> Sorry. So they go to the big mansion and Lady Catherine is, surprise, surprise, a bit of an imperious type. So she also has this really sickly put-upon daughter whom it's rumored that Mr. Darcy is destined to marry. You know, a little, little cousin marriage, keep all that nice mm. property in the family. So Lady Catherine takes Elizabeth to task for her lack of accomplishments. She's bad at the piano, apparently. Lady Catherine gives us this great line where she says, if I had ever learned the piano, I should have been a great proficient. Like, bitch, what is stopping you? You know, Elizabeth is a bit chippy, a bit sarky back at her you know we get we, you know we get all that back and forth i sort of like she's like a kind of kim jong-un figure isn't she she's like a total tyrant give me the, some of that old-fashioned give, give me some of that old time aristocracy that's what that's what the good thing about lady Catherine de Boer is she has the prima nocte and everything every eligible bachelor in the town <laughs> jesus <Christ. laughs> so it's just my own fantasy it's my own fanfic <laughs> A handsome, a handsome young man called Daniel lived in the village of Kandenberg. <laughs> you do have that erotic fanfic somewhere. I know it in my yeah. heart. Unbridled filth for you. I love it. So then, horror of horrors is already this awkward, uncomfortable trip. Then Lady Catherine's nephew, Mr. Darcy, comes to visit. Horrible timing. Lizzie and Darcy are stuck together in yet another big manor house. And this is especially horrible when Lizzie finds out that Darcy is the one who supposedly told his good friend Mr. Bingley to stop making a, quote, most imprudent marriage, i.e. don't marry Jane. But so yeah, Lizzie kind of finds out through the grapevine that Darcy is the one who put Bingley off Jane. So this, <laughs> Darcy's going to have to work overtime to win her back. He's going to have to stand outside her bedroom window holding the real Peter Gabriel over his head. Yeah, let's just talk more about Catherine de Bergen and all her uh, farmhands. No. We can. Yeah, let's move on, actually. <laughs> um, You're the well-hung stable boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm the virgin milkmaid. Yeah. yeah. That's such a great opening scene. <laughs> I fucking love that film. So it's producer's reference. Yeah. Elizabeth hates Darcy. Oh, there's a knock at the door. What a surprise. It's Mr. Darcy. He's in a funny mood. Here's what he says. In vain have I struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. What? Yeah, it turns out he fancies her. He's like, yeah, you're a social inferior, etc. Marry me! 
Elizabeth takes Darcy to task. Why did you ruin the Jane Bingley match? Why did you screw over Mr. Wickham? Why are you generally a conceited ass? Darcy is evasive. No comment. And he scoffs at the Wickham remark. The proposal is rejected, obviously. You know, Elizabeth is admittedly flattered by it, but it's over. The next day, Darcy writes Elizabeth a long letter. Here's what, you know, the gist of it. I stopped Bingley from marrying Jane because however nice your sister and you may be, your family's dog shit. <laughs> I actually saw a tweet once that summed up this scene about how Darcy is all like, I'm sorry I roasted you, I was trying to flirt. <laughs> As for Wickham, the guy's a profligate leech and a wrong'un. He tried to elope with my 15-year-old sister to get a fortune, so... But would you believe Darcy? Because this is a lot of he said, he said, isn't it? Yes, good question. I don't know. Well, Elizabeth has mixed feelings about it, the whole thing, and she's quite disturbed by what Darcy says about Wickham, so she clearly buys into it to an extent. Yeah, so let's not forget that Wickham is the guy that Elizabeth wanted to bang like a screen door in a hurricane, so, I mean, this is, this is going to be important and awkward later on as well, like this tension of, I really fancy this guy, but has he actually done something beyond the pale? She also thinks that there's not a small germ of truth in Darcy's trashing of the Bennets. You know, she recognises that her family are embarrassing. Even her dad. Darcy takes specific pains to trash her dad, doesn't he? Which I quite like. She's also pleased that it's Darcy who's the ass, not Bingley. Um, sweet, easily led himbo king, bringing yeah. a real Kermit energy to this book. Mm? Yeah. Is, it, is, it, is he going to be your Bingley in the... Uh, and Jane would be Miss Piggy. I would love to see, no. A Muppets, well it would have to be because they mm -hmm. always seem to be together. I'm shaking it up, that's burning not, it down. That's not right. They broke up for a while, man. Do you remember he dated that other pig named Denise? <laughs> I don't keep up with it as much as you do, totally. I've never thought I would call a pig puppet a basic bitch before, but here we are. With no, yeah, they're not quite light. complex. <laughs> I've never taken such an instant disliking to a pig. So, everything's a real mess. Elizabeth and Jane, who have gone on their sort of like respective holidays, they both come home. Lydia and Kitty, the two youngest sisters, they're still obsessed with all the officers who have now decamped to Brighton. So that's sort of a Regency party central. And the girls are like, guys, we have got to go down to Brighton. We need to get our freak on. Dude, spring break, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> you gotta get down to Brighton. <laughs> Lydia is also really pleased, and she tells Elizabeth that Mr. Wickham, who, you know, all the girls kind of fancy a little bit, he's gone off that Miss King character that he was kind of sniffing around for her fortune. A nasty little freckled thing, yeah. Lydia calls her. Oh, she's such a, such a bitch, yeah, such a 15-year-old. Yeah. But Elizabeth, who's now wised up to Wickham, she's like, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I just, I wish him a lot of luck with this whole deal. Meanwhile, Lydia has been invited down to Brighton, where all the offices are, by a family friend. And Mr. Bennett is like, yeah, let her have a bit of fun, you know, sow your wild oats or whatever. Elizabeth says, we should maybe be careful here because Lydia is a flirt, quote, vain, ignorant, idle, and absolutely uncontrolled. So, you know, she's worried that by letting her indulge herself in Brighton, Lydia will inevitably bring humiliation on the whole family. Watch this space. We, we, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Gardiner. Tell us he's our uncle. They come and take Elizabeth on a tour of Derbyshire. 
What a hard life, man. Just going from one holiday I to the next. Know. I keep thinking that. You keep going about, oh, it's hard, isn't it? You know, they need to get this top job. It's all just holidays. They're going to Derbyshire, home county of one Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy. Mr. Darcy, sure. En route, they stop off in Birmingham. Hey, that's where we that's are. That's where we live. It's Anna, very glamorous. Anna, Does she treat it with the glamour it deserves? It was afforded. Anna, I cannot be bothered to, bothered to describe such remarkable places. That's a little aside here. Emma, another novel by Jane Austen. One has not great hopes from Birmingham. I always say there's something direful in the sound. Yeah, Birmingham's distressing. Yeah. The gardeners suggest, once they get to Derbyshire, that they all go for a bit of a day trip to Pemberley, the country seat of one Mr. Fitzwilliam. Darcy. Elizabeth, she's resistant for understandable reasons, but the gardeners are like, come on, it's a, it is a nice house. She has a look at the house, it's a nice place. At that moment, she felt that to be the mistress of Pemberley might be something. Yeah, you think, Lizzie? Yeah. That ship has sailed. Or has it? Mm, every time Lizzie thinks she's done with this guy, he drags her back in. The housekeeper who gives them the tour can't stop banging on about how great Mr. Darcy is. He's really nice. He's not proud at all. And the decor's really tasteful. <laughs> Imagine that. He's nice and he's got good taste. What? Well, his servant, who he pays, says nice things about him. And look at that. Curtains. Assured that Mr. Darcy was away, they run into him on their tour. Oh, God. He's Awkward. having a tour around his own house. That's crazy. I mean, he might just be looking for the loo. Oh, okay. Elizabeth is very impressed by Darcy's politeness. And she's also relieved by the gardener's. It was consoling that he should know she had some relations for whom there was no need to blush. <laughs> <laughs> Bingley's there. Aww. Everyone's on good form. Bingley tentatively asks after all of Elizabeth's sisters. And she is also coming around to Darcy, so everyone's getting on and things are looking pretty good. Okay, so Elizabeth and Darcy's long, slow courtship is finally hitting its stride, right? Everything's going well, then disaster strikes. Elizabeth gets word from home that Lydia, as fucking predicted, has gone to Brighton and met up with Wickham, who's stationed there, and they have run off together. The novel kind of turns into a little bit of a manhunt thing here, so we get it's a little bit more of a thriller. There's lots of like colonels and etc. tracking them down with little success. They're concerned that the pair might be eloping which would kind of be a bit of a dodgy thing to do. But the biggest fear is that Wickham is just going to ruin Lydia, right? He's going to have sex with her and not marry her. Everyone is upset because this makes the whole family look bad. So a scandal like this could make the other sisters all unmarriable. How does my sister getting groomed affect me? When Elizabeth tells Darcy about this, her fear is, quote, that everything must sink under such a proof of family weakness, such an assurance of the deepest disgrace. So socially, like, this will ruin the family. Elizabeth and the gardeners head back home, and when they arrive, Mr. Bennet is off hunting the pair, and Mr. Gardener heads off to join him. So really, it's like a all hands on deck, all the men, let's go find them. And Mr. Collins <laughs> writes them a letter of sympathy this when is nice. he hears. He's nice, isn't he? Collins? Oh yeah, this yeah. is this is a it's charming. He, I've really come around on him. Quote: The death of your daughter would have been a blessing in comparison to this. And it is the more to be lamented because there is reason to suppose, as my dear Charlotte informs me, that this licentiousness of behavior in your daughter has proceeded from a faulty degree of indulgence. 
Though at the same time, for the consolation of yourself and Mrs. Bennet, I'm inclined to think that her own disposition must be naturally bad, or she could not be guilty of such an enormity at so early an age. So, you're shit parents, but she's such a shit that it's not even your fault. But I, I am actually glad that he makes a reference to her age. Like, at such an early age, she's done such a horrible thing. Because that really underscores that Lydia is 15 years old and Wickham is a grown-ass man. Mm. So Mr. Bennett returns home unsuccessful. And eventually, they receive a letter from their uncle, Mr. Gardner, who has found Lydia and Wickham. And he announces that Wickham is actually going to make an honest woman of Lydia. Oh, what a good fellow. Well, the, well, the assumption is that Wickham is not marrying her out of the goodness of his heart. What? They, the family thinks that the gardeners have paid Wickham a big dowry bribe to get him to do so. Whatever all the expense and vexation, Mrs. Bennet is overjoyed to hear the news. To know that her daughter would be married was enough. Hooray! Somebody got married, so instead of a scandal, actually one of her daughters is now taken care of. Lydia got groomed, didn't she? She's not a villain. I'm glad we, I found a kindred spirit because when I studied this in my undergrad, the hostility towards Lydia was off the charts and I was the only one trying to say, she's a kid, like which one of us hasn't been a dumbass when we were 15? And he, again, I don't like Lydia, but Lydia's oh, no. a victim here, right? Yes, yeah. of course, yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't like it when we agree. We need to fight about something. The last time we agreed this much on a podcast, it flooded the system. It took the electrician weeks to get it sorted out. Don't remember that. We had to rewire the whole podcast, do you not remember? Oh yeah, corporate got involved. <laughs> Gardner arranges it that Lydia and Wickham will join a regiment stationed up north so that the sordid duo don't cramp the style of the home counties. So that's good. Can you imagine Lydia and Wickham's, like, how we met story? So how did you two get together? <laughs> oh, well, I was 16. No, honey, 15, 15. <laughs> you always get that bit wrong. I was... 28. <laughs> <laughs> he was hot after my sister first, and I would not like to have Christmas at the Bennetts. Because you know he's still going to be chatting up Lizzie. You know he's going to be backing her up against the Aga. Agas didn't exist then. They were invented by a Swedish guy that won the Nobel Prize for physics in the 1910s. That's me told. Yeah, I read a book about him. I flicked through a book about him. Yeah, what is Christmas going to be like now? We get a little taste. After marrying... Lydia and Wickham come to Longbourn before heading up north. Mrs. Bennet is thrilled to see them, but Mr. Bennet is not quite so cordial. So that's kind of like sort of squash. Lydia is on especially annoying. That's such a <laughs> joke. Lydia is on especially annoying form, and everyone but Mrs. Bennet is irritated by her. Is what she says. I'm sure that my sisters must all envy me, and I only hope that they may have half my good luck. Oh, shut up, you little puke! Yes, yeah, she is a puke. By the way, a little words of wise, Lydia lets slip that Mr. Darcy was at the wedding. Fucking qua? What's yeah. he doing there? He hates Wickham. Why is he involved? He's the best man. Elizabeth <laughs> writes to her aunt asking why. Well, Mrs. Gardner responds, Darcy found the pair and he forked out for the whole thing. He's the guy that provided the bribe dowry. Instead of the uncle. Yeah, it wasn't the gardeners, it was Darcy. And Darcy extremely did not have to do this. Like, he had no reason to be giving money to this, like, random dude to marry this random girl. Lizzie realizes here, he did it out of love for her mm. and, like, protection of their family. And she just gives him a standing ovulation. Uh, how did you meet then? Well, my sister had been groomed. <laughs> and I, uh... 
pay to have it hushed up. Lizzie, you know, she's she's really impressed with Darcy here. And luckily enough, Bingley and Darcy turn up at Longbourn. Like, what? just, this is party central, man. People are coming, people are going. Then Mr. Bingley comes by alone. And he finally proposes to Jane. Mr. Bennet says, quote, I have... Not a doubt of you doing very well together. Your tempers are by no means unlike. You are each of you so complying that nothing will ever be resolved on, so easy that every servant will cheat you, and so generous that you will always exceed your income. So he's like, you two bimbos are just enchanted dogs in human form. Long may you reign. Huzzah. Nice fellow with right speech there. <laughs> in any case, everything's coming up, Bennett. Guess who else comes to the Longbourn? Oh my god, there are more guests? Good lord! Yeah. Well, I'm pretty excited. It's Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Uh, she's Dan here. Daniels, you sh I think we should pause so you can take a cold shower yeah. for a little bit. <laughs> Calm down. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, she's not come to see me. I'm out back in these stables. <laughs> Why did Lady Catherine de Bourgh come round? Well, she is imperious and rude as per. And she's like, Word on the street is that you're here to marry my nephew, and I'm here to put a stop to it, see? He's engaged to my daughter, because I say they're engaged. <laughs> Elizabeth pleads ignorance. She's like, well, in any case, what's wrong with me marrying Darcy? And she's like, because honor, decorum, prudence, nay, interest, forbid it. Your alliance will be a disgrace. Your name will never be mentioned by any of us. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's drive through <laughs> <laughs> Well, Elizabeth is like, well, Darcy would be enough. So, Lady Catherine has to suck it up and leaves. Lizzie's like, don't let the door hit you where the good lord split you. Good day, madam. That's a direct quote from the Oh, text. no, I remember. Yeah, it's a good bit. What is the point of this whole thing? Just like, does she, is she the thing that tips Lizzie over the scale? Lizzie's kind of wavering where she's like, I think I actually might love Mr. Darcy, but I'm not sure. And then somebody says, you can't have him. And she's like, well, you. Spite marriage, please. Yeah, yeah. I. Uh, it, but is that like her function in this scene? Because I've kind of wondered, like, why is she here? It feels like a sort of like political thing as well. Like you were saying before about the changes in matrimonial practice, that it's mm. kind of like a screw you to old marriage practices. Darcy turns up at Lizzie's house, and the pair have only a classic Regency tete-a-tetes. They both admit their wrongdoings and shortcomings, their pride and prejudice. Oh. Oh, I love it when the title is said. Well, it isn't. I just said it. Yeah, no, Jane Austen isn't tacky, but you are. Yes. Thank you for this. I am tacky, yes. I show you the title of my Catherine de Bourgh fanfic appears several times per page. <laughs> Elizabeth tells Jane about her change of heart. He played an Uno reverse on her emotions? The very same. She actually says that. My love has been coming on so gradually that I hardly know when it began. But I believe I must date it from my first thing is beautiful grounds at Pemberley. <laughs> She's joking, of course. She's not in it for the house. Um, or is she? Who knows? Darcy finally asks Mr. Bennett's permission. Their engagement is formally announced. Everybody celebrates. Uno reverso card. Wedding. Klaxon. Please. <laughs> what the f sound does an Uno reverse uh, make? So we now get a sort of epilogue once the two most deserving daughters are married. Technically, it's all three daughters, but, you know, Lydia is dog shit. Bingley and Jane move next door to Darcy and Elizabeth. Kitty starts hanging around with Jane and Elizabeth now that she's sort of de-Lydia-fied. So, quote, she became, by proper attention and management, less irritable, less ignorant, and less insipid. No. So I'm going to change this off of what men want. Be yourself. 
Mary, who, if you remember, is the real hero of the story, uh, she still lives with her parents, but she now has to socialize more because she doesn't have her sisters there as a buffer and, quote, accomplish less. But she's still very much like, you know what? I just like doing my own thing. Why is everyone so desperate to get a husband? I've seen enough Dateline episodes to know how this ends. No, thank you. Just truly a hero for our time. Wickham and Lydia, they're constantly mooching off of everyone. Doesn't Mr. Bennett, isn't there a bit where it says Mr. Bennett's favorite son-in-law is Wickham because he took Lydia away? <laughs> I do want to give full respect to Lydia because you know that game, Do Marry Kill? That shit's about to become her five-year plan. Ooh. She's gonna no doubt end up on an episode of Dateline that Mary will watch in a hotel room somewhere. And even Caroline Bingley, bitchy Caroline, she kind of chills her tits. Hooray! The end. All right, casting for this. I'm not doing a period piece with this one. I'd want it to be contemporaneous. Sort of 1930s Ernst Lubitsch screwball comedy, but with that Lubitsch hint of melancholy amidst the sparkling dialogue. It would work because we have the Great Depression, we have women being still relatively new to the workforce, there's a lot of deep inequality that would highlight the economic tension. But in the spirit of the 30s, you can have your cake and eat it too, where you're like, oh, economic tension, but we also want to see wealth and pretty dresses and all mm. that stuff. I was thinking set this in an office rather yeah. than have them being sisters. So Mrs. Bennett as some sort of office manager who's like, girls, I've seen firms collapse before. You're all going to be out without a job. Yeah. Marry one of these CEOs, you know. Titan pool. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, who would be the perfect Lizzie for this period? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Catherine Hepburn, man. Oh, right. Yeah. She would be a real, like, she's got that Is real. She's not more Caroline Bingley. No, no, no. Uh, I want Joan Crawford as Caroline Bingley. What? Because the bitchy energy between her and Hepburn, which one would win? I don't know. I don't even want to be in that room. That would be terrifying. Cary Grant as Darcy. he got to get that aristocratic, slightly up his own ass bit. He's a good comic <laughs> actor. New segment, please. Goodreads. Uh, bad Goodreads reviews. Well, there are two, actually, this time. Just a bunch of people going to each other's houses. One star. <laughs> My favorite, though, right? Is this isn't the worst faith. It tells us nothing. It is not constructive. But it is so childish that it has charmed me. P and P, more like P to the double O P. <laughs> One star. Whitworthy of Elizabeth Bennett herself. P to the double O P. <laughs> What do you have for analysis stuff? You wanted to talk about sincerity versus design. It's kind of like what you were saying about the um, the sense of like there being a kind of transition going on between in the, in the practices of marriage. So there's like a lot of stuff in it about the tips and tricks for bagging a husband. But then at the same time, women are criticized for being artful and cunning. But then those criticisms of other women for trying to like bag a husband are themselves a kind of act of manipulation. What did I say? I wrote something crazy, like, um, and I wrote that it's like trying to play music for the theremin with a diatonic harmonica. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is insane. I know it's yeah. insane, but it really feels like that. You can see that there are these like incredible subtleties that they're all trying to get across, but then they know that they have to play by certain rules, mm -hmm. and you could, they all have to read those subtleties in the, mm -hmm. the kind of blunt instrument that they're speaking with. Do you know what I mean? I really yes. feel like that. You've got characters like Caroline Bingley who are incredibly 
overtly artful and that makes them artless. Yes. Her cunning is so obvious that everyone sees through it and thinks she's an idiot. Elizabeth is weird because she's artless, seemingly independently of the values of her society, but somehow comes to those values independently. Well, she's the one who actually becomes the cool girl. She is the one who is sort of like, it aligned just right where I landed the impossible dream boat because he's tired of all these women coming at him. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not that interested. So he pursued me. She's the impossible cool girl. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And there's something really like, sort of almost sinister about that in terms of characterization that Elizabeth is this kind of an impossible ideal. By just being herself, but herself is like pretty without trying too hard yeah. and has all these incredible witticisms and is always in the right place at the right time, you know, because the author put her there. And then it's like, what about Mary? Because she's on this too, isn't she? Because she fetishizes the forms of the society, purely the accomplishments, to, to like an extreme extent, doesn't really know what they're for though. So she's like, a, she's, she's... They're for her own enjoyment. But they in themselves are limited because they are focused on this external end of finding a husband. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with playing the piano and sewing and things, those are all nice things to do, but she views them as an end in themselves, whereas they were created as truncated art forms, purely to be kind of for ornamental wives. Mary is a funny one because she's the only character, maybe apart from Lydia, who does things purely for her own pleasure. And it's not even about, like, oh, I want to be a great concert pianist or I want to be whatever. She's like, I just really enjoy this. I think she views them as the accomplishments, quote-unquote, as this kind of intangible end. She views them as something more than themselves, like, to get these accomplishments is Mm -hmm. great, you know. I've got all my Pokemon cards. It's like that, isn't it? I've got all these things. Now what? Now what? So there is something a bit hollow about it, and I think there is something a bit tragic about Mary in that respect. But I, I really like that because she's completely devaluing these things that have this very weird value system put on them mm. and or, or maybe not devaluing but revaluing she's like Fuck it, it's my metric she's an interesting character but like as a sort of if you were to treat her as a real person there's something sad about her oh, but it's only sad because we're reading her in the way that we are reading the other bennett sisters and she's on another plane of existence mary lives on the moon friend no she doesn't uh, to extend your pokemon metaphor why do people collect them all because they get something from it yeah, even from if <laughs> even if there's nothing at the end even if you're like okay now what okay well she'll worry about that she'll f- get another accomplishment or whatever if, if she manages to ever get there which she doesn't the process is for her no, because she talks about accomplishments. The end. That's the saddest thing. The yeah. end is what she wants. But that's she what, never gets it. But that's exactly what people do with things like Pokemon cards. It's like, oh, you gotta get them all. You uh, gotta do all that. I, know. Well, I don't want to go all Theodore Dorno on the, this, but, but that what? speaks to the alienation and hollowness of the world we live in, that you would just try and distract yourself through a meaningless task like trying to collect Pokemon. But, okay, because we're using Pokemon and you're very dismissive of it, why do you play a game? Why do you play Boggle? Okay, so you boggled your Boogle or whatever the f*** you do. I'd have never played Boggle. You never played Boggle? No. But, okay, so you've done it. Now what? Oh, it's almost like the experience was joyful for you. No, but I know that rather than devoting hour after hour every day to it like Mary does. I don't play Boggle to try and improve at Boggle. I don't play Boggle because it's some kind of thing I need to tick off. I play Boggle because it's fun to play Boggle. Maybe these are fun I for I don't think so. Okay. Okay, well, tell us what you think, folks. Is yeah. <laughs> is she some sort of feminist icon, or is she just a hollow sad sack, as Daniel seems to think? <laughs> there are issues of autonomy here. The, the book 
looks a little bit with despair over marriage existing purely as a family commodity or as a person existing purely as a family commodity. So obviously the marriage between Darcy and Lady Catherine de Beau's daughter, that's treated as like contractual and cold. Mm. As is to some extent the marriage between Charlotte and Mr. Collins, even though she's like, yeah, this is fine. But then you have the totally autonomous and selfish Lydia and Wickham. Mm. Um, and, and Lizzie is, you know, right at the center of that. Can't we just go down the middle, you know? Yeah. Get a bit of what you want, also do you do. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of the Austin message, isn't it? That's another funny thing, though, about the family, because Elizabeth does exactly what Mrs. Bennett wanted. She marries a really, really rich guy. Mm-hmm. But also the whole plot of the novel is in part about Elizabeth learning to hate her family, isn't it? Like, yeah. Like, it starts off, they're all fun, they're all exchanging jokes and banter and shit, and then as it goes on, yeah, they are a bit weird. Even Mr. Bennett's embarrassing now I think about it. My old dad, you know, why is he such a freak? You know, <laughs> it's just like you have to learn to hate your family in order to, you, to find the ideal man. You could do a little bit of a um, childhood development buildings roman thing. This is where the child learns shame. Yeah, exactly. Or um, learns that you're not of a piece with your family, that you're this kind of atom that can be separated from them. Well, I mean, it's only her courtship with Darcy only really gets going when she's properly separated from her family. Yeah. So she goes off with the gardener's a couple of times and that's when she and Darcy run into each other and you know she doesn't have this sort of like anchor this yeah. horrible anchor of her family dragging her down yeah my defense of Mrs. Bennett her like you know she's a ridiculous character I get that she's embarrassing she's got her her nerves and her you know matchmaking and all this stuff she's played for laughs right but this is a very, very real anxiety that, mm. you know, we've talked about before. Her husband is not taking seriously at all, and that is a super failing on his part. There's a bit where it says that, isn't it? That, yeah. like, Mr. Bennett married her because she was attractive. He didn't really care about the fact that she was shallow. Very quickly after getting married, he did. He never put any money aside to look after his daughters. He just used to, like, spend it all. Mm-hmm. There's a bit that just says, takes Mr. Bennett to task, isn't there? So, yeah, you're, you're right that Mrs. Yeah. Bennett has legitimate concerns. Okay. So, here's some advice. Take notes as you read from page one. So I know a lot of our students have a tendency to just read it through for plot. That's not going to serve you well in the long run. So taking notes from page one is a lot slower, but it forces you to pay attention more. This also saves you from forgetting things too. Um, So over the summer, you know, over the holidays or whatever, read ahead if you have the reading list and take really diligent notes and then you'll, you know, that'll make life a lot easier. You can also revisit the notes later, especially if you ever read another of the author's works and then you can start building up patterns that you see from your notes rather than just relying on recall. Do you write in the margin? No. I do. My books have a lot of notes in the margins. I'm sorry for them. Our clue to the next episode. Our next book is about a man who is scared of his own journal. That's a good one, yeah. Do you have one? Episode 24 on the Save Me From My Shelf podcast. What the f*** is happening? I don't understand what's happening. A book? Little, uh, well, you like it anyway. See ya! I don't understand what the clue is. What are you doing? What is this? I'll tell you after it's recorded. Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, 
and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.